Okay, Ecclesiastes. Well, I don't know how you came in today. Um, you may have come here full of the joy of the Lord, but you'll be transformed by the end of this sermon. <laughs> Are you ready for the most depressing sermon you've had this year? It's from Ecclesiastes. If you're melancholic by nature, you'll love this. I spoke to two guys this week. They said, what are you preaching on? I said, Ecclesiastes. One guy went, ooh. Well, that's a bit, uh, that's a bit depressing. He was by nature a very jovial person. I spoke to another guy who I work with who's by nature a very downbeat guy. Lovely guy, but very downbeat. He said, oh, I love that. I said, well, even, even phrases like, you know, sorrow is better than laughter. Absolutely, he said. I said, what, it's better to go to a funeral than a party? Absolutely, he said. So um, he's not here, but uh, he, w- he would have enjoyed it. But uh, hopefully we will get some meaning out of this too. I mean, an amazing book. I can't even find it in my Bible. So I have to do some of it off memory. But it starts fantastically. The first verse, I don't know if you can get Ecclesiastes 1-1 up there, but the first verse it tells you who wrote it. Um, sorry, if you can get chapter 1, verse 1, if you can. doesn't matter if you can't. Um, this is just how it starts, just to get you in the mood. The words of the teacher, son of David, that's Solomon, that's who wrote it, calls himself a teacher in the sense he's teaching and trying to pass this wisdom on to the nation. King in Jerusalem, this is what he says. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. That's how it starts off, okay? That sets the tone. Well, this book was written by Solomon, and uh, it's really the musings of an old guy. Uh, I would say old as anything my age and upwards, okay? It's the musings of an old guy who's seen the lot, done the lot, tried everything, been in the kingdom of God, been, been wise in it, was given the most amazing wisdom that maybe any man has ever had. And yet still did stupid things like have 300 wives and I don't know how many concubines. Built the temple. No end of other amazing projects, gardens, horticultural things in the city. Just everything you could imagine that will be a nice project. Does some of you like taking on a new project in your home? He did it to the largest scale. The nation of Israel expanded to its greatest extent. Under his reign, their influence went further than it ever went. He was renowned worldwide for his wisdom. You know, the Queen of Sheba would come, spend time with him. People would consult him. How, how, how do you do this stuff? And he would say, God, God gives me the wisdom. God gives me the understanding. All glory to God. That's how he started off anyway. Then he started getting entrapped with loads of women and so on. But basically, he had obviously no lack of riches. Whatever he wanted to do, pleasures, you know, he could afford to do anything. Holiday in Hawaii, followed by a quick round the world tour. If he wanted it, he could do it. So this is a man who can, can and had done just about everything. Every type of pleasure, every type of meaning you could possibly derive from your work or your projects or wealth or anything. This is the man who writes this book. And yet he gets old and he goes, you know what, sons... Or son, as I say to my son, i got some things to tell you. I want to save you a lot of the bitterness of soul that I have experienced. Take it from me. If you follow my advice, you could save yourself 
an awful lot of trouble. And that's the purpose of this book. That's why we're looking at it today. I'm going to do a little overview of the whole book. Hopefully you haven't done Ecclesiastes or anything like it recently. If you Good. Um, and do an overview of the whole book. And then we're going to hone in on just six verses as an example of how deep you can go in it if you want to, as well as taking an overview of the whole book. It's funny as you get older, you do get a little bit more, um, I don't know what the word is, I don't want to say miserable, but um, an example of this, I remember John laughing, I took my wife out for an anniversary meal about four years ago, and I sat down, nice romantic meal in a hotel in Newquay, and I said, Bromin, we ain't got much longer, we're about to die, so what do you think should be our last shot at serving God? She thought, great, he's come out for a romantic meal, and he's saying basically... We haven't got much longer. Blah, blah, blah. What are we going to do? But there's a truth in that you'll find when we read this. Our days are really short. And not only that, we don't know how long they're going to be. So it wasn't so foolish, but maybe not the right moment to say that <laughs> type of thing. I remember the late, great David Wilkerson used to laugh. You know, he used to go and see his grandchildren. And they'd bring out some new toys and say, Granddad, look at this. And he'd say, it's all going to burn. Now, he'd say it with a smile on his face because he knew what he was saying. He was having a bit of a laugh with them, but he was saying, don't get too attached to all these gadgets and things you kids get into. It's all going to burn. It's all going to go. Don't build your life on it. That's really what he's saying. But as you get old, you can get away with it perhaps a little bit more. Well, superficially in this book, if you read it, you know, you may think there's a few contradictions. On the one hand, he'll say, you know, it's good to just learn how to enjoy yourself. And a bit later, he says... You know, as we all read, better, better to go to a house of mourning than a party, all this sort of stuff. It's not contradictory. And basically what happens, it's written in a sort of circular way. So he revisits almost like verbal processing all the way through different themes. Uh, and in the end, he gets to this amazing conclusion. I told you the beginning of the book. I'll tell you the end. And then we'll look at the middle. But at the end, he says, you can weary yourself with loads of study. You can read every book under the sun. But he says, basically, I've seen it all, I've done it all, and this is all I can say. Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the chief duty of man. And then he goes on to say, basically, I haven't got the words in front of me, but you're going to face God when you die. Just get and live right. And that's all there is to it. Quite a summary at the end of it. But he does a lot of rambling to get there. We're going to go and home in on chapter 7 in a minute. But uh, just before that, I'm going to read a little bit from the end of chapter 5 and chapter 6, just to further, uh, you know, do a little bit of an overview. You've got to understand that right before this, he's done a chapter saying that pleasures are meaningless. He's done a chapter that says that work is meaningless. He's done a chapter that says advancement is meaningless. He's done a chapter that says riches is meaningless. Hey, pretty depressing. Because how many of you have tried to find meaning, me included, in pleasure. How many of you have tried to find, maybe currently trying to find your primary meaning in work or in getting on a bit in life or in making some money? If we're honest, we often look to those things for meaning. And he goes, basically, you'll never find it in those things. It's a tough message. It's a sobering message. And just to sort of summarize some of those chapters, at the end of five and the beginning of six, he, he says this. This too is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. 
And what do they gain since they toil for the wind? All their days they eat in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. That really is meaning the people outside of God, okay? But he says this, this is what I observe to be good, that it is appropriate for a person to eat, to drink, and to find satisfaction in their toilsome labor under the sun. Work is hard, make no mistake, but he says it's good, eat, drink, find satisfaction in your toilsome labor under the sun during the few days of life, see I was right, the few days of life that God has given them for this is their lot. Moreover, when God gives somebody wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their lot and to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. They seldom reflect on the days of their life because God keeps them occupied with gladness of heart. What a great, simple set of lines. And then he says, I've seen another evil under the sun. He's not going to rest on a good point too long. I've seen another evil under the sun and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions and honor so that they lack nothing their hearts desire, but God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless a grievous evil. I was working with a guy this week, a carpenter who had been working for another guy, who he said just continually went on this developer about, I've made 15 million quid. I've got the biggest plot in Cornwall. I got a thousand acres with my house. I made it all myself. He said, you wouldn't meet an unhappier guy, a more stressed guy, a more miserable guy than you can imagine. So what did that do for him? This is exactly what Solomon is saying. And he's ripping my friend off at every opportunity, grabbing another couple hundred, a couple hundred. You didn't do that quite right, so I'm going to take 200 back off you and this sort of stuff. So his 15 million is just not enough for him. And he just carries about himself with what you would call the opposite to the fragrance of life. Now, we're going to home in on just six verses Uh, to go into some depth about some of the things it says in Ecclesiastes. Starting at chapter 7, verse 1. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. Eh? A good name is better than fine perfume. Well, that's simple. We see that theme picked up in the New Testament, that we are called to be the fragrance of Christ, the, the aroma of life. Everywhere we go, we want to be leaving a a sweet smell. You've heard that said many, many times in your workplace, in your family, with your children, wherever you go. You want to leave with people going, I like that guy or I like that lady. She was sweet. She was good. She was helpful. She was humble. She was, there's something lovely about her. That's what we're called to be. Even if you got cheap perfume like Old Spice, better to have a sweet fragrance about you with cheap perfume than stride in with Coco Chanel on and a stinking attitude. Better to have um, a, a good smell about you than fine perfume. A good name is better than fine perfume. How does he get this into the second half of the verse? And the day of death, better than the day of birth. What a link. This is one couplet. Wow. The day of death is better than the day of birth. You know, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses love this verse. That's why they don't celebrate birthdays. They say, you know, this is what the Bible says. We don't celebrate birthdays because the day of death is better than the day of birth. Well, to me, that's over-righteous. We're going to look at that word in a minute, over-righteous. That's over-whatever. 
chill out. Your birthday is good as well. Okay, just because the day of death is better, it doesn't mean the day of birth is terrible. All right, just says it's better. There's a lot of this in this passage, better. Doesn't mean the other is awful. We celebrate, you just had a child, somebody there. Wasn't awful, was it? It was beautiful. But the day of death is better than the day of birth. So what does this mean? Well, it's incredible. As a child comes into the world, it, um, it screams, quite simply. And it starts the way we go. Uh, there was a philosopher or a philosopher, a theologian called Trapp, who said this, before ever a child speaks, he prophesies by his tears of his own ensuing sorrows. Okay? And it's true. It's true. You know when they came to Mary and the angel came and said, you're going to have the Son of God. You're going to be blessed amongst all people, but, oh boy, you're going to know sorrow that nobody's known as well. This is just life. We have the highs, we have the lows, and almost with the privileges, with the children, goes the pain. Because you worry about them. You you care for them when they get bullied or when they get whatever. Your heart breaks, even though it's a blessing, it says, to have children. So as this child comes into the world, in a fallen world, in a broken state, with the whole world ruined by the fall, it prophesies almost with its first screams and tears of some of the ensuing sorrows to come. There isn't one here who's not been through serious sorrow in your life. I don't think. And so you might as well get used to it from birth, I guess he's saying. But still, why is life better than uh, death, the day of death better than the day you're born. Well, Spurgeon said, death is the end of dying. All through this world, you're having to just battle against the flesh. Put it to death. Put it to death. Die daily. I want to do this, but I really believe God would have me do this. I'm wrestling. I'm fighting. That is fighting the good fight. That is the fight of faith. And then, when you die, you are liberated from that thing. You see, we have... And it ain't going to be pretty today, but we have, unfortunately, particularly in the West, a hugely uh, temporal emphasis on our life. Eternity is something we just think about occasionally, but basically we're totally preoccupied with the here and now. And Solomon is going, take my advice, don't live like that. Don't live like that, it doesn't do you any good. This theme is revisited, as you know, in Philippians, when Paul said, To die is gain, but to live is Christ, okay? He's saying, I really want to go and be with Jesus forever, where there's no sorrow, no tears, no suffering, but i got work to do here. But he puts a positive on it. He goes, to live is Christ. While I'm down here, it's not all bad. I'm filled with the Holy Spirit. I experience the joy of God. I see God do wonderful things. It ain't all doom and gloom down here, but it's even better to die. This is what Solomon's trying to get across to us. Well, verse 2, let's continue the good news. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Better to go to a funeral than a party. Hey, a lot of you are going, I don't think so. I'd rather go to a baby shower. I'd rather go to my friend's 25th anniversary celebration. I'd rather go to a wedding and have a lovely meal than a funeral. How can you write this, Solomon? But he's going better. Again, he's not going, all that's rubbish. He's going, that's all great. Better to go to funeral. Why is he saying this? Well, 
I want to just put it in perspective. Solomon's already said in chapter 3, there's a time for crying, a time for laughing, time for mourning, a time for dancing. He's not a killjoy. He's just recognizing that it's actually better for you, better for your soul probably, to go to a funeral than a party. Do you believe that? I mean, uh, you don't have to be, but I'm just saying, that's what he thinks, and this is what the Word of God is saying. I remember when I was about 17, my dad was a butcher, he had a wholesale meat business, and one day he said to me, um, I'd been cutting up meat for him in the school holidays for years, and uh, he said, it might be good for you to go down and see an animal killed. And I said, he didn't mean good, as in great, great entertainment. He went, it might just be good for you to see the whole process. So I went down to the slaughterhouse. Uh, it's grim. Quite honestly, it was quite hard to watch, although I'm glad I did it. But the, the bullet comes in, it gets stunned. It then gets shot in the skull. They then put this pithing rod in. So it does that to make sure every bit of life is squeezed out. Sorry if you're squeamish here, by the way, as young kids. But anyway, then they hoist it up. That, all the stuff comes out. They Cut it in two with a chainsaw, and off it goes. That's it. But you see, we are so preserved from anything to do with death. You just go back 50, 100 years in this country. You wanted a chicken, you go out the back, you got back garden and do that. The kids would have to do it, have to see it. Most cultures around the world see where meat comes from. We live in weird days. This is not normal to go to a supermarket and get a little slab of something and take it home and go, I don't want to think about it. You hear people saying, don't you? I'll have a bit of fish, but don't have, leave the eyes in it. I don't want to see what it really is. We're living in a state of semi-denial when it comes to death, but so it is with human death. You've got to understand that we live again in totally weird times. We don't see it. Now, some of you may say, I have, and I'm, I don't mean it to be insensitive here. Some of you have seen it, okay? But generally, society-wide, we don't see it. People are taken away to die. We don't see dead people on those streets, unless freak maybe a car accident. But it, everything is very abnormal. If you looked at the life expectancy in 1900, it was 31 years old globally. In 1950, it was about 48 And now in 2010, it's 67. And the main reason for that is about 100 years ago, if you had a mining family in Cornwall and 10 kids in it, you'd probably see about three die before they got to five. This is just, the death was everywhere. And so people are reminded that this life is temporal. We feel indestructible these days. We mock guys who walk around going, prepare to meet thy maker. They go, ah, wow. You know, in the old days, they didn't. They go, yeah, we need to live right down here. We need to always carry around with us this sense that this could be our last day. I would be dead with asthma. At 27, I would have died, probably, outside of a miracle of God. Many of you wouldn't be here except for the wonders of modern creation, uh, modern medicine. And so we're preserved from it, and we don't live with eternity in mind. Death is a sort of distant thing, And many young people run the foolish life that goes, I'll think about that in 30 years' time. I've got the luxury of 30 years to think about all these things. But sometimes as Christians, we live in a similar way. It's better to go to a house of mourning than go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone, and the living should take this to heart. We need to be thinking, what about this day when we meet our maker? Well, third verse, more good news. Sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face 
is good for the heart. Hey, sorrow is better than laughter because a sad face is good for the heart. Well, this might seem again like a little bit of bad news. But where do you grow most? Where do you grow most? You know it, don't you? You know the answer in your suffering, in your trials. None of us are masochists. None of us go out going, oh God, give me another trial. I want to glorify you even more. But in reality, we know. I preached a few weeks ago on the mountains and valleys. And every mountaintop, uh, Moses goes up there. Intimacy with God on the mountaintop receives the moral law that's still going today. What an experience. He comes down, they're dancing around to a golden calf. They go up the mountain of transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. There's Moses, Elijah, Jesus. They're like, this is, this is fantastic. This is like the fifth day of new wine. I've been worshiping God. I'm in spiritual heaven. I don't want to go back to Monday morning. Please, Peter says, can we stay here? Can we put up a few booths and just stay in this place? Jesus goes, no, we've got work to do. They go down the mountain. They confront a guy, or they're confronted by a guy with an evil spirit. They try and drive it out. They fail. And then he says, and anyway, I'm going to be killed soon, but don't worry, I'll rise again. And it says they're filled with grief. Talk about a high to a low in one day. And then you've got Elijah, you, on Mount Carmel. Remember that incredible high? The next day Jezebel says, I'm coming after you. And the poor guy is absolutely beside himself. Mountains, valleys. I don't know where that came from, actually. Um, where do you grow most? This is the point. Where do you grow most? Those disciples grew more by failing... They learned more by, uh, they had to dig deeper. As Jesus said, I'm not going to be around all the time. That forced them to dig deeper. We don't like it, but sorrow, in a sense, is better than laughter. I remember going to a school once and doing an RE class. And the RE teacher said, I hate this subject called, why suffering? Why does God allow suffering? I thought, I don't like it either, really. But he said, would you come in and do it? I said, yeah, I'll do it. So I went into this school. I don't know what came over me, hopefully the Holy Spirit. But I got a whiteboard. I drew a line down the middle. It was a spontaneous thing. And I said, can anybody tell me anything good about suffering? These were kids, largely unchurched, unchristian kids. First one put his hand up. Let's you know who your friends are. I put, okay, number one. Number two, builds your character. Third hand up. Uh, well, if you suffered, you can help people who are going through the same thing. I thought, lovely. Three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. I said, okay. Anybody tell me anything bad about suffering? They went, a few of them said, might make you take drink or drugs. The list was about that big. What an incredible thing. They did it themselves. I didn't have to try and convince them that there might be some value in hard times. They owned it themselves. Sorrow is better than laughter. Laughter is really good, okay? So don't uh, be too overpowered by this. Well, we're moving on to verse 15. Just three more verses to go. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these. The righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Now, this doesn't need a lot of explaining, does it? He's basically going, don't fall for the idea that if you get everything right, you've got some guarantee of long life, of health, of whatever. Look at the persecuted church. Look at these righteous people perishing in their righteousness, standing strong to death, but they have a sense of eternity because it meets them head on. 
they know that better, better, a bit of suffering here, a bit of persecution here, and an eternity with Jesus, than I jib out here. And, and I don't mean that judgmentally. I might jib out. But better that way around. The righteous perishing. It's tragic, isn't it? A uh, young guy in our church said this week, he heard on the news that a young missionary family somewhere, I don't know if anybody else heard it, all perished in a car crash this, this week. He said it affected him all day at work. He was just troubled all day. Why? Why would this happen? Well, outside of recognizing that temporal life is this big and eternity is that big, and to die is gain, it doesn't make any sense. This is what Solomon's trying to bring in to us. It sort of makes some sense of these most difficult themes in life. And for every great, young, righteous man who seems to get cut down in his prime, there will be some evil dictator, no names mentioned, who go on into their 90s oppressing people. I've seen the wicked live long, and I've seen the righteous die young. And then he goes on to say, verse 16, Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? What a confusing line. Don't be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Have you got a clip ready? Yeah? It's been heavy. We're going to have a bit of light relief on what over-righteous might mean. We got some Christian friends who are cool, right? You can hang around with them. You have friends who may not be Christian yet. But then you got Christian friends, right, who are, uh, I'm just going to say this. I'm going to put it out there. You ever know somebody that was oversaved? <laughs> like you can't even have a regular conversation with them. You just try to be like, man, it's a hot one. It's pretty hot. Huh, I'm thirsty. You thirsty? Thirsty for the Lord. <laughs> well, uh, okay, cool. Hey, I lost my keys. Could you help me find my keys? Seek first the kingdom of God. Like, I just, I just lost my keys. Man, I don't know. You need the keys to the kingdom. I didn't drive a kingdom today. I just drove a Toyota. And I know as soon as I said oversave, some of y'all already had somebody in mind. But if you didn't, they probably had you in mind. You might be oversaved and you don't even know it. I'm going to help you out. This is how you can know if you're oversaved. If you're at the restaurant and you order a fruit salad, you start to pray over it. But your prayer lasts so long. By the time you eat, it's trail mix. You oversaved. If your friend buys you a vacuum cleaner and you rebuke it because it's a dirt devil... And so on and so on. That's just uh, cut short there. But oversaved, it's like dieting, isn't it? I've never done a diet in my life. I've had less sometimes to lose weight, but I've never done one of these diets. And you see, they come every three or four years. There's a new one in there. I don't know if any of them are any good, but boy, oh boy, everyone's obsessed about Cambridge, Atkins, Paleo, something else. And they get weirder and more extreme every decade, it seems. Oh, I'm doing this new diet. You don't eat, uh, I don't know, any sugar, not even one granule. And you, you just eat something like, I don't know, bananas for four weeks. 
well, of course you'd lose weight, wouldn't you? But the thing is, they're extreme. And I know people that have gone on them and done themselves tremendous damage. Somebody I know the other day went on a sugar fast. Complete withdrawal from sugar overnight from loads of it to zero. I mean, they nearly lost their mind. Now, don't get me wrong. We can all have a, some wisdom that goes, I need to eat a bit less sugar and so on. But you see what I'm saying? These extreme diets, it's the same sometimes people's approach to Christianity, to faith in God. I want to be oversaved. I want to be over-righteous. And Solomon says, basically, take it from me. I've seen this over my life. People that are over-righteous, don't be over-righteous, don't be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? What does he mean, really, by being over-righteous? I believe, and it gave us a clue, that he's really meaning what we would call being super-spiritual. Being more spiritual than even Jesus was, and doing things that even Jesus doesn't require us to do. I mean, the Bible's hard enough to live to, isn't it? Without putting extra things on. Like wearing itchy pants or itchy vests that certain groups have done to remind themselves all day long of the suffering of Jesus. I don't think Jesus requires us to do that. I meet people sometimes who have an inordinate need for prophecy. I mean, I met a lady the other day and she won't take a step without somebody having confirmed it with a prophecy. Forget the fact that Jesus has given us the word. By the way, I believe in prophecy, not against it, all right? It says don't treat it with contempt. Don't read that into what I'm saying. But you've got the Bible, you've got the Holy Spirit, that, that sees us through most things. Occasionally, it's great that we receive a word or something. Some people just have to do it. People over pray. John said, you know, there's a couple at college once, and they'd pray, which supermarket do you want us to go to, Lord? And then he'd say, oh, little. Then they get to little, oh, Lord, uh, white bread or seeded batch? Um, beans or spaghetti? Oversaved. Too much. Do you see why it says, do not wear yourself out? One version says, do not destroy yourself. I've seen people go on extreme regimes of spiritual disciplines. I'm going to pray so many hours a day, read 15 chapters of the Bible a day, something like that. Over-righteous. Jesus didn't even do it. Pharisees, tithing cumin seeds, over-righteous. What a ridiculous pursuit that is. Tithing cumin seeds. Muslims wearing a burqa, over-righteous. We believe in modesty, and sometimes the church lacks it. But isn't that over-modesty, over-righteous? I'll wear black from head to toe and a veil over my face, so you have absolutely no chance of being attracted to me. Over-righteous. Wears people out. If you meet people that are over-righteous, they will often be worn out by their over-righteousness. This is what Solomon is saying. He's not saying be don't be over pure, don't be over patient, don't be over kind. He's saying do all that in increasing measure. Love people more than you've ever loved them before. But all this stupid self-righteousness, which the Bible ultimately says is just filthy rags anyway and is a close friend of legalism and religion. Who are you trying to impress? Who are people trying to impress? It certainly don't impress God. And I'm not sure that it impresses people most of the time. Well, then he just switches the last verse into, but at the same time, do not be over wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? Now, as much as you can wear yourself out by trying too hard, you can die early by trying too little. And this is the whole realm then of playing fast and loose with God, cheap grace, or Jesus has paid for all my sin. He won't mind if I sleep around a bit and get drunk again and do all those things. I'm under grace. 
You know, Paul said, shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? No way, he says. And you meet people as well who are over wicked. I'm not talking about perfection. None of us will be perfect here probably this side of heaven. But we can be too slack, can we? Ah, God won't mind if I just do this. And he's saying, don't be over wicked either. Don't make foolish decisions. Why die before your time? Now, I don't need to be under condemnation here. I smoked for, I don't know, 20 years, but it's foolish, isn't it, at the end of the day? You're going to cut your life short, probably. Why die before your time? By drinking too much, by smoking too much, by doing this too much, by eating too much bad food. Why make wise, unwise decisions that cut your life short, let alone seriously unwise decisions that actually get us in a lot of trouble, could maybe have, maybe having an affair and an angry husband may come up and wipe us out or whatever. He's saying, don't be over wicked either. Don't be foolish. Why die before your time? Verse 18, it is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes, eh? Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Well, that's it. We finished. I'll just come to the conclusion and see maybe some of the things that we may have learned today. I don't know if you found it tough. I mean, it's not the easiest passage, is it? But I had a, uh, we had a word from uh, Mike some time ago. I remember it two years ago when he said he got a picture of us uh, pushing things around the plate. And he felt the Lord saying, you know, there's all this stuff in the Bible, but if we're not careful, we, we ignore the bits we don't like. We ignore the green beans, the peas, and all the nice stuff. Just give us the ice cream. I like the ice cream. But we know that doesn't produce ultimate health. So today we've had some real uh, green beans. I actually love them anyway. But this is what we've maybe learned a little bit today. First of all, wisdom is crucial to make sense of life. And you can start in Proverbs, you can start in Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes, the wisdom literature, for learning some amazing stuff in there. Secondly, uh, we learn from elders. You know, Solomon had done it and seen it. We need to have a respect in our culture that goes, maybe some of these older people know more than I. I was really shocked after the Brexit vote how much scathing uh, abuse there was of the older grey-haired lunatics have taken over the asylum. Now, I'm not getting into the politics. I'm not interested in what you voted in one sense. But I didn't like that. Maybe those old grey-haired people had lived in Europe, out of Europe, this way, that way, and maybe they'd seen a little bit more of life that maybe some of the younger people in their 20s could have at least gone, maybe they've seen some things that we haven't. But oh no, they were treated like complete idiots. Fourthly, everything is meaningless if you look for meaning in it outside of God. So if God leads you to do a job, leads you to do a project, leads you into a ministry, you may well find meaning in it in the sense that out of this relationship with God and him taking you through it, but outside of God, all these pursuits just end in complete frustration, darkness and anger as Uh, Solomon said. Fifthly, live in the light of eternity. It's hard. I don't like the idea of dying. I've got to tell you, I really don't. But I need to make my days down here very much. Decisions I make down here on a daily basis need to be in the light of what is common to us all. Finally, uh, nearly finally, value sorrow. None of us like our trials. I know James says, count it pure joy when you face trials. We don't really. But at least consider that there is more value 
in trials than there is in the mountaintops. And fifthly and finally, be a grumpy old man. No, I'm only joking. Uh, Fear God and keep his commandments. This is the whole duty of man.